Seven Figures Nation, welcome back to another episode of the Seven Figures Club podcast, where we bring guests who share tactics, strategies, and tools to help you join the Seven Figures Club, the 5% of businesses that generate seven figures a year, and hopefully even get into that uh, 1% that do eight figures annually as well. Today's guest, Malcolm Peace, is going to provide a lot of value in terms of helping you on that roadmap. Malcolm is the founder of now, is it uh, Tetsera? Is that the right way to say that? Tetsera Growth Partners. All right, we got Tetsera Growth Partners. It's a company specializing in acquiring family-owned small businesses with established Texas legacies. Unlike traditional private equity firms and business brokers, Tetsera takes a long-term approach focusing on operating and growing businesses for sustained success. With his extensive background as a coach and consultant, Malcolm equips small firms with the necessary tools to address industry challenges, explore innovative approaches, and make informed decisions. Throughout his career, he has demonstrated a deep understanding of macro and microeconomics, having uh, helping decision makers accelerate sales objectives, resolve personnel concerns, always a big one, and improve overall processes. Moreover, Malcolm leverages his vast network of vetted resources, providers, and suppliers to foster lasting and mutual beneficial connections. Well, Malcolm, excited to have you on the show. How are you doing today? There are over 32 million businesses in the U.S., and over 90% of them will never break seven figures in annual sales. So how do we as entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs break into that seven figures club? This podcast will relentlessly share the secrets, strategies, and tactics I've used to create three multi-seven figures businesses and bring in even more successful entrepreneurs than me to share their inspirational stories and tactics to success. You can create your dream business in life right now. So buckle up and let's go. Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, perfect. Well, we always love to find out a little bit about your background in terms of what were some of the key events throughout your life that led you to eventually going towards a path of entrepreneurship, becoming a business owner, and creating something as valuable as as you and your team have done? What, what were some of those key events that happened that made you think, yeah, you know what, instead of working for someone else, I want to be running my own organization. What were some of those key events? You know, um, yeah, great question. So one of the challenges in life is some people, they get to see it by example, and some folks don't get to see it by example. And thankfully, um, you know, with me, my family immigrated from South Africa. So I'm first generation American. They moved here six months before I was born. I saw them start from nothing. Um, there was limitations on how much money could be taken out of the country during the breakup of apartheid. And so there was a lot of challenges when we first got here. Um, my daughter wow. asked me the other day how I know how to speak Spanish. And I had to explain to her that I had a Spanish speaking nanny. Um, that's how I learned um, because my parents had to work. Um, they were getting it done as best they could. Uh, my mom was in computer programming and data management. That was her background um, in kind of small firms. And then my dad did an import export business was what he was doing. They both you know, pivoted slightly since then. Um, but for the most part, still in the entrepreneurial space, kind of in the small business space. Um, and so I got to see it. I got to see them, you know, I used to tell my, my brother and I used to talk about it. You know, one of those stories you would talk about is my mom working as a computer programming consultant late at night. And we, we didn't really have a curfew, but we, we knew she was going to be up when we came home because she would just work into the night until we got home as a worried mother would do. And so, um, but that was, that was the example. I got to see hard work. 
Um, and I got to see it done in a, a real entrepreneurial fashion. And so, you know, candidly, um, seeing that set the groundwork, um, I thought I would go start a great idea. Um, there's a lot of challenges for doing the seven uh, figure kind of getting from zero to seven figures. I like the stat you said at the very beginning about 5% of businesses achieve that. Um, that's a stat I didn't know. And uh, I, but I also have the sentiment that it's very hard to do. And so we have a lot of um, we have a lot of respect for the business owners that we buy their businesses from. Um, and so ultimately, you know, seeing my family start from nothing, seeing how hard it is from that, I thought, well, hold on a second, maybe there's a world in which we could buy businesses. And so, and starting in 2016 and 18, kind of recreating the narrative of that's what I want to focus on. We want to buy businesses, and then got more and more refined over time about how we do our thesis, what the types of businesses are, how we go about it, all that kind of stuff over time. Malcolm, that that's awesome. I don't know what it is about uh, South Africans that immigrate to the U.S., but we got Elon Musk and David Sachs <laughs> and some of the best entrepreneurs in the world apparently immigrate to the U.S. from the country of South Africa. So there's something amazing about uh, you know how that country creates amazing entrepreneurs who come over to the U.S. and absolutely change the world. So that's super interesting that you came here from South Africa with your parents. And obviously your parents are great entrepreneurs and, and self-starters themselves, import, export, uh, technology, computer IT, that there's nothing better than having that example. And so that's, that explains a lot when you have that kind sure. of great example, you're like, yeah, I pretty much like, like that uh, independence, like to have that yeah. control and that's uh, the legacy your parents brought uh, before you. Now, you know, obviously you guys uh, have a system and we're going to definitely dive into that about what that decision-making process looks like. What are some of the businesses you like to work with? Obviously, maybe in our audience, there are some that might be a good candidate for you to work with. But before we jump into that, obviously over the last, over 2023, and, and I've been working with business owners and in, in doing business financing and loans, lines of credit with them for over a decade. I would say, you know, with the exception of 0809, even though we're not technically in a recession, it seems like there's more uncertainty right now being felt by business owners across the country than ever. What are some of the challenges that you feel like business owners are facing right now, you know, as we go into the fourth quarter here at 2023? Yeah, great question. Um, it's so funny seeing actually the podcast name and seeing your name and all that kind of stuff. I've interacted with you guys before, but that can be an offline conversation uh, <laughs> at some point. But, uh, you know, all that to be said, um, you know, figuring out financing for businesses is challenging. Figuring out business growth is challenging, all of the above. We sit in this nice space of people that are doing three to $12 million in revenue. Um, we're trying to acquire their business. And I always say we try to acquire from folks that need a reason to sell to some extent. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that the businesses, we don't do turnarounds. It's turning you know a, a tough corner, but they typically are running up against a, I've kind of hit my skill set. And for me to go yeah. to that next level would take a different set of skill sets. And one of the challenges that I find in this space is that a lot of these businesses have customer concentration issues. That, again, just the sample size that I work with, they have customer concentration issues. And so when they have a pullback in their business or they feel uncertain, it's typically related to one or two or three customers that they have a bit of concentration issues with. Um, that's just been my experience. Um, and so they're trying to solve that problem and diversify. Now it takes time sometimes to have those sales cycles 
to be able to get a broader diversification of customer. And ultimately, it would change the makeup of how the business is run. You need to add more executive people that can handle that. You need to add more sales guys. You need to add more operations, however it may be. And it often in our case is that these business owners are just not prepared to do that for multiple different reasons. And so they feel the strain real time because they feel that major customer pulling back a little bit or shifting gears or maybe not ordering as much. That's just the example I can totally speak to. That's that's a great example. So basically, it's just businesses are getting a lot of their inflow, a lot of their income, a lot of their customers or clients may be coming from just one you know, pretty decent size or some very large customers. And if they start to pull back, you know, their purchasing of their product or service, then it has a really big material impact on that business. I'm curious, what what do you think is kind of a good percentage as a rule of thumb? For example, when, when I started uh, Seven Figures Funding over five years ago, the majority of our business at the very beginning was coming from this event company that would do these live events across the country. And we would do go and provide financing for the students, those events who are starting new businesses. And then COVID happened. We're like, Oh wow, we're in trouble here. And we pivoted. And, and now um, I would say of all the thousands of strategic partners, our, our biggest one, you know, might be around 10% of, of sales and everything else is is much more broadly spread out. But what do you feel like a good number is? Like if you're like, oh, 50% of your business coming from one client or customer, obviously too much. What do you think a good rule of thumb is that business owners should be paying attention to in terms of you know making sure you're more diversified in your customer base? Yeah, every industry, great. This is a great story. Thanks for sharing that. Every in- industry is slightly different, right? So I don't want to, I'm just speaking for sure. Here. Um, but you know, all that to be said, I think you know, twenty five percent at most should be the circumstance for one particular group. One of the things that I don't want to overshadow there that you just said that I think is really, really key is being able to make that pivot is not as easy as people make it out to be. A lot of business owners start out as the vendor. For instance, they are the guy that maintenances the refrigerators inside the WalMarts and the grocery stores, or they are the plumber that, you know, service this particular thing, or they won one contract for to work as a sub for the following thing. And they grew a little bit because someone said, oh, you did well on this one. I'm going to bring you on in this one. And then they grew. And so they get to a certain point where they have a nice volume, nice business, but it was always based on their ability to kind of be that vendor for one particular, you know, customer basically. And so as a result, that takes a bit of a mind shift to say, okay, I'm going to go out and generate different business. I'm going to go out and diversify. Not a lot of folks can do that. And I think it's truly a different skill set that kind of takes that seven figure to eight figure. Yeah, no no question about it. So how would you define that skill set, right? Building a a seven figure business and then getting to, let's say, you know, between five to 10 million a year, and then that step of jumping from 10 to let's call it 25 million is obviously a big jump. How would you define what the business or or the entrepreneur has to be able to do to be able to make that jump from you know one to 10 and 10 to 25? Yeah. So one of the um to answer your question in a long, a little slightly longer way. One of the things that I have found, because I get the privy to look at lots of different types of businesses, all blue collar industrial type businesses in Texas Mm. is exclusively look at, but I get to look at different types of businesses, whether it's the bridge installation company to the Porta John company to the, you know, sorting machine manufacturer to the underground installation. I've seen it all. 
And what I have found is a lot of folks that have generated, let's say, $20 million in revenue, they mm-hmm. and they have customer concentration issues, their margins are often very small at the net at the end. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's just the theme I have noticed when they have a broader situation of, um, of customer concentration, their margins tend to be higher. And I find the reason that is, is because they have pricing power and control in the leveraged equation. And what ends up happening a lot of the time, if you can't make that switch, and sometimes it's from free cash flow that they can't get off of jobs and projects and all that kind of stuff. If they can't make that switch, they are always in the receiving side of what the outcome is. And that's a big challenge for a lot of these small businesses to make happen. And I think that's actually where somebody like Seven Figures funding can actually help, Um, not to plug you there, but I think that's where a lot of people make that switch where they need the free cash flow or the leveraged ability to be able to go diversify and say, hey, we're going to be able to wait on some AR um, from this vendor that we're now working with, this customer we're now working with, and they can kind of straddle that period of time. Otherwise, they're always beholden to the free cash coming off of that one or two customers that make up a big portion of it. And that's, again, that's just what I have noticed in my circumstances, looking at a lot of businesses, P&Ls now, um, that it can be a real challenge to switch over. No, I think that's absolutely factual, Malcolm, because I've seen it in my own business career, my own entrepreneurship career, where I build out this education portal and really kind of just build it out for one group, one company. And it started out that per user, they were paying us, I want to say $350 per user that we would you know, give them access to this education portal that we built out. And before long, over two years, I think we were we were squeezed down to a hundred dollars a user. And then of course we opened it up to, you know, a lot more other groups and companies. And of course we made a lot more money doing that. But when you are beholden and the majority of your business or a good portion is coming from one big partner and any hiccup happens in their business, well, they're just going to say, sorry, we've got to, you know, cut prices. We're going to have to pay you less or we just can't even do business. And if you're in that situation where you're held handcuffed, I mean, you have no choice but to kind of accept that. And so I think that's a huge point is the more you can diversify and and, uh, and broaden that customer base, the the better margins you're going to have. For those types of businesses, in your experience, what are the net and gross margins that you're trying to get them to? Yeah. So we will not acquire something that's below 15%. I just think that's too challenging between the AR and AP cash flow side of things. So that's a big component for us. We take over businesses that I would like to say that a platform that are on a plateau kind of situation and performed kind of even keel for the last few years, because I think I can get appropriate valuation with that business owner and transact. I really want to close the deal. I don't want to get into a circumstance where you know, all of a sudden they think their business is worth more um, while we're in due diligence going through the deal. Um, It's happened. It's not fun. I won't do that again. Uh, So, you know, candidly, when we're going through that process with them, you know, we want to get to the point where we can look at it and say, does this business have enough meat on the bone for us to be successful through this transition? Because there might be a dip, there might be challenges. That, oh, yeah. that key person may never sign an employment agreement and may not want to stay on or whatever it may be. Um, all those things have been experienced. And so you've got to be able to kind of bridge that gap with enough. And so we look at a minimum of 15%, but we have businesses that are doing greater than that and um, and continue to excel. You know, I find it interesting uh, too, Malcolm, that you guys love working 
within uh, some of these uh, blue collar business industries. And I feel like there's so much opportunity there. Um, why is it that you've kind of decided uh, to focus on those blue collar type uh, businesses versus maybe white collar businesses? And what are some of those differences, distinctions that, because there are people listening on here who have been in a certain industry and they fall in love with, oh, I want to start you know this type of business that maybe is more white collared in, in nature, but they're missing out on bigger opportunities and probably better profit margins sometimes with these blue collar businesses. Yeah, great question. Um, this is the Mike Rowe in me. Um, I like getting my hands dirty. I love it. I was just going to ask you about them. <laughs> <laughs> that's just that's you know that's half of it. I like getting my hands dirty personally. Um, originally, when we started out, you know, I would step in as CEO president for the first six months, and then I would get replaced. Um, but you know, candidly, I like getting my hands dirty. And there's these niche businesses that we can play in. But I would be lying to you if I didn't look down that over the journey. I think every entrepreneurship journey is a you know crawl and a walk then a run. When we were crawling, I was looking at all sorts of things. I looked at a factoring company. I'm just thinking white, true white collar. Like I was looking at all sorts of stuff. And so, um, but the challenge was is when you look yourself in the mirror and you say, you know, where can I add real value? Um, there is a lot of folks playing in the white collar space. There's a lot of folks that are playing in unique businesses in that way there are not a lot that want to go buy a brick manufacturing company. There's not a lot that want to go buy a roll-off dumpster company and scale it. There's not a lot that want to do all those types of things that if I can say we can go in, we can add you know, true standard operating procedures, add um, true low-code, no-code software to help scale up these businesses, and I can make a tangible impact um, into the people's lives that are part of that journey, I like it. Um, and there's a lot of businesses. I think Texas is now the 10th largest economy in the world, uh, depending no on who's reporting. And so there's plenty of opportunity. Um, there's lots of folks that are running up against circumstances in their life where they need to sell their business. Um, and we can be that solution that son, niece, nephew, or daughter to be able to answer the question, and, uh, you know, will you run this business for the next 10, 15, 20 years? That's our intention. So you just uh, dropped a big golden nugget there that I think everyone needs to pay attention to. You you talked about one of the things that you guys do or or that you're looking for is is implementing different technologies. It's a proprietary type technology, whether it's a system, a software, something like that within the business, even in blue and especially maybe in blue collar businesses. How much more value does that add when you can have some sort of proprietary technology that you implement within that business that makes the systems, processes, everything run more smoothly? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, we do not try to build out the back office with people. That is our last option. We try to build out the back office and our sales process for that matter as well with software and automation. There it is. It's not scalable to do it any other way to compete. I can't pay what other people pay. So I got to compete differently. And that's how we've been able to be successful. Yeah, no, big, big uh, value bomb. I think that you just uh, dropped right there. So with your company, is uh, would you describe it as, as a private equity company? And for our listeners who might be in that position where they're wondering, uh, you know, how do I know uh, if I've got a good sellable business? Uh, you know, I've got different reasons. Obviously, we've got a lot of baby boomers that are getting to the point where they, they prefer to retire and, and maybe exit out of the business, maybe you know, the, the their kids are just not interested in continuing it or, or just don't have the, the expertise to do it. 
So, so what should someone be looking for if they're like, I'd, I'd like to sell my business? How do they know if they're a good candidate? And let's say they're in that, uh, that range. And I know you guys also look for, you know, Texas-based businesses, but, but what would that uh, process look like for someone who's trying to, you know, ascertain, Hey, is this dual, is this possible? Could I actually sell my business? Is it a sellable business? And there may be in those blue collar spaces, which by the way, we serve a lot of so. <laughs> um, great question. We, we have a lot of this information on our website. I'll plug that later. But to give it real high level, um, we we are a private holding company is the way I would most describe it. Um, certain circles, that means different things to different people. One of the things that I don't want to relate to is traditional private equity. Traditional private equity was lever the business up, purchase it, and try to sell it within a couple of years. We don't want to do that. We want to hold on to these businesses and I want to be proud of it. And I want the former owner to feel like they can walk in the door in five years time and feel honored because I have a dear, dear respect to be able to take a business from zero to seven figures is incredibly hard. 5%, as you said earlier, are uh, are capable of doing that. It's really hard. I have utmost respect. I'm not sure I could do it. Maybe in a different life, I'll try again, but it's tough. And so as a result, um, we want to we want to build off of the great foundation that's there and not just shell it off afterwards. And so we go into these businesses. We are very selective in our process as well. We're not eager. Um, we don't have to put money to work every single month or what have you. Um, we're not under any kind of timeline or constraint, but we are really there to hold on to these businesses long term um, and ultimately um, and preserve the legacy and be that next baton holder for this business. Mm. Super fascinating. So for everybody that is listening and maybe is in that spot and they're thinking of, you know, what this uh, might look look for, I guess one other quick question would be, do you ever look at businesses outside of the Texas area or do you really like to stay focused in Texas only in the businesses you guys like to work with? I have done it in the past when I was crawling. I am walking, maybe running at some point soon. And we no longer look at any other company outside of Texas. It allows oh, us to be, that allows there, us to be a, focused. Go ahead. Uh, it just allows us to be focused. Perfect. Oh, that, that makes sense. I mean, there's, there's a lot of benefits in Texas. I know a lot of the uh, the laws and regulations are, are much more friendly to business. Certainly, we've seen businesses in states like uh, California and Washington and Oregon, other spots, New York, that have moved to Texas and been very grateful that they did move to Texas. What is it about Texas that you believe gives uh, some extra benefits and advantages uh, to businesses and entrepreneurs and why why it's something worth considering if your business is not located in Texas? Yeah. So we're, we're based in Austin and I can just give a real world example of the scenario of being in Texas in the majority of the cities that we're in. And there, this is the case in a lot of other places, but I think it's really unique. I'm in Austin. If I go any in three directions for an hour and a half, I have access to about a half a million bright students to be pull talent from. Mm. That's not including Houston. That's not including Dallas. But just point from San Antonio, Waco and out to Texas A&M, about an hour and a half circumference around you know this area, I can pull lots and lots and lots of talent. And so if I'm looking at it from that perspective, I can pull talent here. And then I've got still two major cities that I can also do those types of things business will continue to thrive. If there's an influx of people coming in and there's a retention of those type of students, you're going to continue to get um, the talent um, necessary to drive these businesses 
Now it's my job to attract them to businesses that may or may not have previously been as sexy to be a part of. Mm. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Obviously, you get the amazing staff and the amazing talent uh, in those areas that there's nothing more important than having a great team. No question about that. So kind of another uh, question, but for, for first, uh, real quick, let's, let's uh, for everybody that is listening to this point and they actually want to see if they're a good candidate and they're in the Texas area, what's the next step for them to see if they would be a good fit to be able to sell their business? Yeah, you can reach out to us at Sitzera, um, Sitzera Growth Partners. You can find us on Google. It's spelled T-S-E-T-S-E-R-R-A. Um, happy to chat through any of that context. We have a lot of articles and also a on their valuation tool. One of the things I'll say about the valuation tool, it's helpful when your books are clean. So my my advice to any business owner that's wanting to do um, that process, whether you're working with us to just get a rough idea of kind of what your business would be worth or working with any kind of business broker or small advisor group or whatever the case may be, you got to have clean books. That's going to be the first thing. So people actually know what it's worth. So, um, you know, that would be the the instance where you kind of rubber hits the road. You can reach out to us. We can start having the conversation, but the next step would be, you know, let's, let's start talking real financials about what your business looks like. Um, and then really what's your dream for this business in the years to come. We want to make sure that aligns with what we're doing. I had a conversation with a business owner this last week. He's, you know, contemplating different uh, terms and, and different things that he's looking for. And I was very candid with him. We want to own this business long-term. If that's the case, we need to be upfront that, you know, at some point you are fully transitioned out of here um, because you're reaching out of age and you have other interests and you got grandchildren all over the place. Like, let's go, let's go talk about what the future of this business looks like in our, our hands with this baton we're running with. So um, yeah, candidly, you reach out to us at any time, happy to answer any questions. Um, but there's a lot of information out there. And I think that the big thing is, is let's make sure that there's an alignment about kind of the vision you have for the business um, and your legacy and everything that you've built. Um, and we can figure out the price and the terms and kind of stuff afterwards. Yeah, no, no question. In terms of that uh, valuation, uh, in my experience, usually you're looking at uh, multiples based on earnings, maybe some other assets that the business uh, might own. What would be kind of... Uh, Obviously, there's so many different factors when it comes to evaluating a business, but what are some key things to think about if you're trying to figure out what your business might be worth? Uh, yeah, so we use an earnings kind of idea right there is the most simplistic way of it. There's a multiple for that industry. You apply it to the earnings that the business is able to do. Um, what I would say is, you know, to being able to figure out to your question about figuring out what your business may be worth, you can look that up informational wise on different other platforms. But, um, you know, candidly, it's it's being able to understand that most businesses in this kind of blue collar industry are going to trade anywhere between three times to five times those earnings, um, knowing that there might be some adjustments to that. So not to get too much of the minutia, sometimes when people are running their businesses, they've got some personal expenses and other things going through, that stuff will all get kind of worked out. We want to look at what the normalized operations of the business would be cost wise and expenses and revenue. Um, and then we look at that from a, you know, a industry multiple to give some semblance. One of the things that allows us to play within that range from three to, you know, five X on that is just how the business is structured, you know, talking about customer concentration. I don't want to go pay five X for something that has one major customer that's a big threat and risk. So if the goal is for you to transition out, you've got to find a circumstance where everyone's risk profile is ultimately evaluated and um, taken into consideration. If I give you a lot of cash up front, the terms are going to look different 
Um, and so we've got to be able to mitigate that risk because if your true goal is for this business to continue on past you, uh, we want to make sure that everyone's aligned in that process. No question. And if you're looking at a business as someone who evaluates business every day, like you do, and there's a business that has recurring revenue membership, you know, pretty predictable income models versus those that are just doing one time, you know, product and, and service uh, fulfillment, how much more valuable is that recurring revenue model going to look like? Yeah, it definitely is. Um, one contingent that I always put on um, the revenue models is definitely helpful. Um, it's what's the margin generated on that revenue model is also really important. Um, you yeah. know, sometimes it can be hard to service that that reoccurring membership or whatever the case may be, depending on the business that you're in. Um, I, I looked at a home service company. They do a lot of memberships. Um, there's a big demand on that membership the way they've structured the terms on that membership. So that that stuff takes into consideration. Um, and, and so, yes, I think historically, um, businesses that have reoccurring revenue have gotten larger larger multiples, but you need to pull it back one more layer of the onion and and making sure that that is a sustainable model. And again, risk factor is taken into consideration because I we own a manufacturing company does really, really nice margins. Um, but they're, you know, we're only selling 12 to 14 machines a year. I'm okay with that. The margins are really good. The customer verification is really good. The sales cycle is pretty good. Um, but we get nice margins that go along with that and, and we can handle, we manage the cash really well. That's such a good point. Paying attention to those profit margins. Well, Malcolm, it's, uh, been an amazing, uh, episode. Uh, we've never had someone who, who's actually running and, and doing acquisitions out there like you're doing. So you, you've shared a lot of value, uh, for everybody that's looking to build their business and maybe go from that, uh, uh, that seven figure, you know, maybe they're at one to two million or they're looking to grow to five to 10 and maybe have an exit. What are the things that they should do today is kind of our final question to really increase the value of that business so that they would be a good candidate to be able to sell it at some point. Because th at the end of the day, a lot of businesses are not sellable. They yeah. just aren't. And there are some key factors that people need to understand for you to take action to make it sellable. When that's a great question. When we buy the business, uh, most of the businesses don't have an org chart, but if they did, the business owner would be in there, most likely in the middle of it. <laughs> and everything points back to them communication wise, reporting wise, whatever the case may be. When we buy the business within the first, we have a hundred day plan, but within the first couple of weeks, we do some team meetings uh, with the whole, the whole company. Um, and I present an org chart and I'm not on the org chart and they're very confused. Um, but it's intentional because if I'm on the org chart and the business becomes dependent on me, uh, that's a challenge. So what we do is every year we do an annual meeting and we just did one of them uh, two, last week and we presented a new org chart for the end of 2024, the goal for the end of 2024. So five quarters from now. And the org chart looks larger. It looks different. There's new titles and new responsibilities. And so anybody that's looking to sell their business, continue to remove yourself from the org chart. Um, and continue to set a vision of where you're going because that buyer might come along at any point and you want to be able to articulate them very clearly. This is where we're heading. This is why this business is going to sustain. This is why it's going to continue. And it's not going to be dependent on me, whether or not I'm here every single day. And so those businesses are the ones that people get excited about. That, I couldn't have said it any better, Malcolm. I mean, that's exactly right. Guys, if you want to have a valuable business that's sellable, can the business function without you? Can you go to Europe for a month and the business doesn't skip a beat and you don't have to be on your phone every five minutes? If your business can function without you, then you've got a real business. If it cannot, 
then that's where you need to make, uh, you know, maybe uh, go read that book by Michael Gerber, the E-Myth Revisited and start yep. working, you know, on the business instead of in it all the time. Get yourself out of there, duplicate yourself and good things can happen. Well, Malcolm, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. So many value bombs. Make sure you guys are taking action. And if you're in a position to look at that, make sure you go look up Sarah, uh, Growth Partners. What was that website again, Malcolm? Sitsera, spelled T-S-E-T-S-E-R-R-A.com. Happy to chat with anybody through there. Perfect. Go check it out. And if you're not in that position yet, take action on building a business that functions without you. And we'll see you next time on the Seven Figures Club podcast. Are you looking for more seven-figure secrets, content, or even how you can launch your own recession-proof business? Then check out sevenfigures.com. That's the digit seven, F-I-G-U-R-E-S.com, where we share more videos, stories, strategies, funding solutions, entrepreneurial education, and even the secret business type that's recession-proof. Thank you for listening, and if you're finding value in our podcast, please give us a five-star and invite others to join the club.